0: and reaction. Here is NL News
1: Director Shane Woodford on 610 a.m. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. Bit of an overcast day. Some blue sky here and there here in Kamloops. Uh, exciting show ahead. We're going to talk about uh, discovery about ABC Okanagan, finding lakes or actually carbon sinks, and then what happens in turn when you pull water out of them for irrigation. That's kind of up uh, in a little bit. Uh, today is also by-election federally, a day in Burnaby. We're going to talk to Kelvin Gowley, Burnaby now, setting the stage for what might happen there later on today when results start to come in. And we'll also touch on provincial politics with Global BC's Richard Zussman to finish off the show. But first, uh, we're going to dive right back into the Trans Mountain Pipeline story uh, with the man who's taken a deep interest in that pipeline story and the arguments around it. Environmental chemist Blair King joins me now. Good morning, Blair. How are you?
2: I am doing
1: great, thanks. Excellent. So, uh, first and foremost, uh, the National Energy Board, with its uh, sort of deja vu ruling on Friday, again saying, okay, uh, the benefits far outweigh the risks, although there are significant risks. As we look at the 700-page report, in your, in your opinion, does it change the dynamics at all or, or, or No not exactly
2: what it does is it basically addresses what the court asked the them uh, to address it says here is the challenge you asked us to address here is our here is our revised answer and uh, shows once again why the project is likely in the best interest of British Columbians
1: I know it in a blog post uh, I think it was about four or five months ago that you wrote uh, I think it was just after the uh, federal court over returned the approvals for the Trans Mountain Pipeline uh, that you said, and I believe somewhere along the lines of your confidence was shaken in the pipeline getting built. It was a confidence you've held until that point. Uh, Now that the NEB's kind of come out with their deja vu ruling and we wait for the federal government to do whatever it's going to do, uh, do you still feel it's going to get business? Has your mental aspect of this thing changed again at all or no?
2: Uh, realistically speaking, this is still in my mind a 50 50. Uh, I believe that the pipeline is in the public interest. I believe that the pipeline will actually reduce risks to the West coast of BC. I also recognize that in the political climate we exist in, it may not happen anyways.
1: Now, a lot of this report uh, it was broken down into two po- components. One, I suppose, is the Indigenous thing, uh, consultations with First Nations. That's largely in the realm of the federal government. Uh, but what the sort of meat of the NEB report, uh, as far as the new attention, was on the plight of the southern resident killer whales. I was intrigued to note, uh, first off, the 16 non-binding recommendations that sort of look to address that. What did you make of that and the fact that they're non-binding? Well,
2: Realistically speaking, the reason most of them are non-binding is because they're dealing with things that are outside of the jurisdiction of the NEB. The NEB is not technically allowed to make a lot of these uh, uh, things. They provide recommendations, and then the government is responsible for making the decisions and making the regulatory restrictions upon which the various actors will operate.
1: And do you think that uh, with those recommendations and with the conditions attached, that if we build the pipeline, that there'll be enough things in there to improve the situation as far as uh, the Salish Sea and, of course, the Orcas go, or no?
2: Well, reasonably speaking, uh, the southern resident killer whales are simply don't simply live in the Salish Sea. They have a, a habitat that goes from Haida Gwaii to the north to California to the south, and re, and when considering their plight, you have to consider their entire habitat. And unfortunately, the NAB's jurisdiction is entirely on the route uh, that the tankers will move. And so they weren't able to consider the entire habitat of the southern resident killer whales and thus suggested that we should think in a more holistic manner. Holistic is a nice way of, think, of saying let's think about the rest of the, the west coast and what happens if we don't build this pipeline.
1: I was intrigued by uh, one of the non-binding recommendations, number nine, and I'll just read it verbatim here. The Governor and and Council should, in conjunction with relevant United States regulatory authorities, consider the need for a Canada-United States transboundary vessel traffic risk assessment. Because I think, and I think you probably agree, a lot of the argument on Trans Mountain has been on the increased oil tanker traffic and the impacts around that. Whereas, by and large, the overall marine traffic, including tanker traffic uh, from the Americans, down to Washington State and beyond uh, has largely been sort of sidelined in here.
2: Exactly. Realistically speaking the the Trans Mountain is only one of the major uh, users of this area and the Americans ship a lot more tankers on the American side of the border than Canadians do on the Canadian side. And there are huge amounts of Orca habitat that are that are exposed to American tankers, and frankly, there's play, parts of their traditional habitat that the orcas simply don't go into anymore because the American tankers make that that habitat uh, un, unpleasant. A Rosario Strait, which is the big Strait, uh, the the two major straits on, in uh, going north south in. A, to the Strait of Georgia are Harrow Strait and Rosario Strait. Harrow Strait is the one that the Canadian shippers use, and Rosario Strait is the one the American shippers use. The Americans, uh, Rosario Strait at one point was a shortcut uh, from, uh, for the Orcas. It's now essentially unused by them because it's a narrow strait that is occupied by these huge ships. And until... We uh, acknowledge that the Salish Sea is a transboundary water, and that both and that the orcas don't care whether they're on the American or the Canadian side. We won't get a protection policy that will actually help them.
1: The other thing I was uh, intrigued to note is what happens here, Blair, and it's something I wasn't—I uh, was largely unaware of, and I think most people are too—is if the Trans Mountain pipeline is not built, what does that mean for our spill response capacity?
2: Well, ultimately the the extra spill response capacity that was going to be paid for by the shipping fees in the, the New trans Mountain won't be paid for. The, the, all these extra uh, spill response vehicles, the spill response spaces, all that extra infrastructure was going to be paid for by adding to the shipping fees uh, along the uh, pipeline. If the new pipeline isn't built, those facilities aren't built, and we don't get our spill response.
1: What did you make of some of the reaction around the ruling? I mean, this issue is always bitterly divided. Uh, You spend a good portion of your time, uh, even though it's not your job, uh, but you've you've, uh, chosen to take on some of the sort of facts versus fiction in this argument. Uh, When we had the ruling on Friday, everybody and their dog weighed into it. What did you make of some of the reaction that was out there?
2: Well, the reaction was was typical. We had the activists saying one thing the the pro people saying another, and they, they really didn 't change their tune whatsoever. Uh, we have a situation where if we 're talking about the southern resident killer whales, their primary risks to them are not ship strikes or they, but are rather food access to food and uh, issues with long-term exposure to contaminants and in particular to PCBs and you look at where the PCBs came from they're they're virtually all from the Puget Sound area we look at uh, the the exposure, all the the food, and the food has to do with whether with our commercial fisheries, our use of dams, uh, how we have made use of the the marine foreshore and got rid, re, uh, reduced the herring and the other basic foods that the salmon depend on. So realistically, all of the things we are fighting about really are circumstantial when really what matters if we care about the southern resident killer whales, is getting them habitat, getting them food, and getting contaminants out of their uh, body burden.
1: So, by and large then, uh, and I think the the NEB tried to do this to some extent, do we really need to make this argument larger than a pipeline, a associated uh, increase in oil tankers, to the larger issue, like the umbrella issue, uh, one, the relationship between our country and our neighbors to the south and the salish sea and all of the people all of the mammals and etc that live in that that is it time to kind of say okay let's 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 move past the pipeline let's talk about what's going on out there because uh the national energy board made a pretty clear point that uh, pipeline or not the environmental impacts in the salish sea are pretty significant
2: well, yeah, and as, as many people pointed out, the same day that people were talking about one tanker a day, 360 for, uh, 60 or so tankers a year uh, expansion would happen in the Salish Sea, the, B- the B.C. government said we're going to add 2,700 new ferry sailings in, that, in the, these same waters. The reality is that there's a there is massive cumulative effects on our marine, uh, marine environment from our human existence. And if we're going to do this, we have to figure out a way of doing it, looking from the big picture. We have to protect the ecology and we have to protect the food source from the herring roe all the way up to the, the, uh, to the orcas. We have to ensure that the eelgrass is, is preserved. We basically have to do protect the marine environment environment. environment and to do that we need to do it we it's transboundary we have we share these waters with our american cousins we have to ensure that if we're going to make this ecosystem survive that we work with them to get a bigger picture
1: excellent blair always pleasure chatting with you thanks so much for spending some time this morning Thanks for having me. There we go. There's uh, environmental chemist Blair King, who's taken a special interest in the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Uh, He spends a lot of time on social media sort of trying to separate fact from fiction around that pipeline. As you heard him speak about there, uh, his gut telling him so far 50-50 chance the pipeline gets built. Interesting stuff. We'll take a quick break here on the Woodford Show. On the other side, we'll talk about a discovery out of UBC Okanagan uh, considering lakes are now carbon sinks and uh, some of the interesting impacts around that. Andrew Midwood joins us right after this.
0: News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and
1: RadioNL.com. Good morning, welcome back to the Woodford Show. A team out of UBC Okanagan has made a rather interesting discovery that lakes are actually carbon sinks and that when you pull water out of them for irrigation, it doesn't cause the best reaction. Talking about that, a pleasure to be joined on the phone by UBC Okanagan soil scientist Andrew Midwood. First and foremost, I guess, you know, when we talk about greenhouse gas emissions and, and things like that, everyone sort of focuses on uh, on uh, cars and uh, large industry and and maybe to some lesser degree uh, cows. But but uh, but uh, you you found an uh, an interesting sort of other contribution on that front that perhaps hasn't been known before. What's going on?
3: Yeah, that's right. So um, we've discovered this additional source of CO two which comes out of um, irrigation water, and it's it's um, really applies to uh, lake waters where they, the the uh, the water has the opportunity to absorb and build up these salts bicarbonates in the water, and when that Irrigation water is then applied to soil, this bicarbonate changes form, becomes CO2, and is liberated in the irrigation water. So it was a really interesting, and um, it, it, I don't know if it's also CO2, you source CO2, we weren't fully aware of that uh, previously. And, um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's an interesting discovery for us.
1: Okay, so if we learn this, uh, what do we do about it? Uh, there's, uh, I think, just uh, we're in Kamloops, of course. Just to our south is, yeah. is uh, sort of the Okanagan, where there's a lot of fruit uh, and uh, vineyard, and a lot, a lot, a lot of irrigation. And if lakes and uh, certain water sources are, are carbon sinks, uh, how do we how do we figure out what to do about it?
3: Yeah, that's it's an interesting question. I mean, the you know this is part of a broader broader piece of work, obviously, and we're looking at. Um, you know, how CO2 is absorbed from the atmosphere by plants as they're growing and it's fixed and then those plants die, obviously, and produce leaves and, you know, dead leaves and material which eventually is um, composted and, 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 and turned over by microbes and bacteria, fungi in the soil. And then some of that comes back into the atmosphere, so it's kind of part of the carbon cycle. Um, but look... Because ultimately, we're really interested in trying to figure out if we can manage soils in such a way that they hold more carbon, and if we can just increase the carbon content of soils very slightly, that has, can have potentially have a very big effect on atmospheric CO two levels and pull pull down the atmospheric CO two concentration by using soils and managing them. But to do all of that, we need to get full picture of all the kind of ins and outs, if you like, all those carbon transactions, and this is just one part of that canopy, kind of so it 's a small piece in the puzzle, uh, and so it just helps us to fully understand the system, but you know there 's no way we 're kind of advocating that we should stop irrigating or anything like that because the plant growth that irrigation sustains um, um, uh, fixes much, much more carbon than is liberated by the irrigation water. but it is for us you know in trying to model model these things, we need to know all the ins and outs.
1: Yeah, so uh, I guess the question then is if uh, if we're sort of sketching out, we're looking at trying to f- figure out what the big picture is, and you've uncovered a portion of it, a small piece of the puzzle, as you called it. Uh, what's the next step to, to filling in that picture and gaining a better understanding?
3: Yeah, well, one of the things we want to do, I mean, we, we, we've we done some estimates just now, and for, for example, in the Okanagan Lake, we... Over over a year, um, we extract something like 5.7 million cubic meters of water comes out for like every year for for irrigation, as you rightly pointed out, for fruit and vineyards along the side of the lake. We estimate at the moment that it, that contributes something like 25 million liters of CO two to the air, which is equivalent to burning something like 17,000 liters of gasoline. So you know, it's it's, a, it's not an unappreciable amount, but in contrast, to the amount of vegetation that's supporting it's um, uh, uh, you know it, it's probably a relatively small carbon flux back into the atmosphere, so you know our, our you know going forward from here, we, we we want to understand a little bit more about how how that how the co two which comes out of water how that is controlled because not all of that bicarbonate tends to co two only a small proportion does and so we're interested you know we've got future research going on now at UBC can to kind of figure out um you know what, what that release CO2 from the bicarbonate.
1: So can we assume that every lake is a carbon sink, or does it depend on the, I don't know, surrounding biosphere or, or you know, um, makeup of the water itself? Or?
3: No, not all lakes, uh, but quite a number of lakes um, contain this bicarbonate, yeah. Uh, and particularly in arid regions, um, the, the bicarbonate content of, of waters tends to be quite higher.
1: Interesting. So, when you guys were doing these tests and they started coming back, and you started to get yeah. some rough idea of of, uh, of the results here, was it was it fairly shocking or no?
3: <laughs> yeah, it, it, uh, it, you know, it was a classic piece of scientific discovery because we were, you know, we were very interested in for monitoring the CO2 which comes out of soil and and, and understanding that that kind of flux. And we were doing these measurements, and we just could not understand our results. There was this strange, bizarre measurements we were getting, and uh, it took us uh, probably a year or so to figure out. Actually, oh, it's coming from the irrigation water, and that. Uh, and then we. Then we turned our attention to that and made this kind of interesting sort of little side discovery of uh, an additional CO2 flux we weren't aware of.
1: Yeah. So, uh, I mean, any idea right now about, you know, how you would... um, I don't know what the word is here, restore a lake's ability to be a carbon sink or, or refill it up or whatever it is, uh, if this irrigation is indeed drawing it out. Is there a way to counterbalance that, I guess, or no?
3: Well, no, I don't think so. I mean, you know, these, these are all very kind of natural processes, you know, and the, the, the lake surface is absorbing CO2 all the time. the a natural process, and these bicarbonates being formed. So it's not something that we... Envisage ever trying to sort of tackle or eliminate or do anything about really. It's more a question of just knowing it's there and getting an, an estimation of the, the the dynamics of it and the and the magnitude of these fluxes, and then we will build that into future modelling. So that improves our modelling for our modelling work in the future, and that helps you know build much much kind of more rigorous science behind the work that we're doing really. So, how much more work do you
1: guys have? I assume this is going to be not a a project that's going to last months, but perhaps, in fact, years. Yeah.
3: Well, yeah. I mean, it's all part of uh, of, of this broader kind of work that you know lots of scientists are doing all over the world, really, and and trying to really just trying to use soils as a uh, you know as an effective way to bring down atmospheric CO two concentration. So it, it kind of feeds into that, and that is a an ongoing project on a global scale, really. And lots of research groups across the world are trying to do that. And, you know, we're just part of that, that overall effort at the university here.
1: All right. I guess uh, my last question is uh, obviously uh, uh, a pretty significant find, Uh, as you mentioned uh, a lot more work to do, but um, what happens with your work now as far as a broader context, is this going out to via paper or something to inform other scientists so that, you know, other people can turn their attention to figuring out different parts of the puzzle themselves, or no? Yeah,
3: yeah, sure. We've actually already published the work in uh, a journal called GTMS, but that that came out earlier this year, and we've we've been to conferences and presented the work too to kind of disseminate the information uh, more widely because it is it is something that's not just applicable here you know it's applicable to any system whether there are cabinets in the irrigation water.
1: That's a very interesting find, and I'm really curious to see where it goes. Uh, thanks for taking a few minutes to chat with me. Really appreciate it. Thanks. That was UBC Okanagan soil scientist Andrew Midwood talking about lakes being carbon sinks and then those greenhouse gases again being emitted when the water's pulled out for irrigation. Very interesting stuff. We'll take a quick break on The Woodford Show. To the bottom of the hour, on the other side, we will dive into the federal election in Burnaby. Talking to Burnaby Now's Kelvin Golly.
0: News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. The voice of your community. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com.
1: Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Today is the day for a rather important uh, federal by-election down in Burnaby. Will or will not Jagmeet Singh get into office as the NDP leader? Or, or well, how will it all play out? Let's uh, talk to a guy who's been up to his eyeballs in covering the race. And uh, we'll know a lot more about it than I do. Uh, Burnaby now is Kelvin Golly. Good morning, Kelvin. How are you? Good. How are you? Good, man. So, a uh, million-dollar question first. Is there any scenario here that Jagmeet Singh doesn't come out a winner?
4: Um, oh yeah, <laughs> I mean, you know I think this is this is going to be a relatively close th- uh, three-way race here. Um, it really could be anybody's: uh, Richard Lee for the Liberals, or Jay Shin for the Conservatives, or, or of course Jugmeet Singh. It, you know, it is it is Singh's race to lose. It, you know, the, the previous person to hold this seat was a NDP member, now the Mayor of Vancouver, uh, Kennedy Stewart. Uh, so uh, I think he's the favorite, but it's 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 by no means a lock.
1: Yeah, uh, Kennedy Stewart won, but not by that much. Last election, what five hundred? votes or so? I mean, every election is its own animal, and by-elections are a unique animal unto themselves, but can we read into that that the Liberal Party is perhaps the the big contender here in Richard T. Lee, or, or no?
4: I really don't know. I mean, you know, Richard Lee is, you know, he's certainly a, you know, um Got a very good chance. He he was you know an MLA for 16 years, so the people of Burnaby are certainly familiar with him and have supported him in the past. But you know, uh, it, by elections are usually pretty tough for for a party that's in power. And you know, in addition to that, you know, the, the Liberals sort of have the SNC Lavalin uh, scandal right now. So you know, that would make Jason um, you know a, a pretty big threat to, to Mr. Singh. But then the PPC is, is is maybe pulling votes away from from him. So it, it's you know elections are hard to predict by elections are especially hard to predict and this one i think in even more
1: so it, it, you're in the riding uh any sense of what the interest level here is i know there's about 5400 or so people showing up at advance polls turnout of 7.2 percent uh you know it, it, as far as overall turnout do you think people are going to flood out there do you think we're going to see a relatively low turnout are people tuned into this thing or no
4: um, yeah, I certainly expect it to be, to be higher turnout than your average uh, by-election, just by virtue of how much campaigning has been going on here. I mean, uh, Singh announced that he was going to run here f- as far back as August. So uh, it, people are certainly going to get out there more than your average by-election. Uh, as far as will it rival a, a general election, uh, I think probably not.
1: <laughs> I was intrigued when I look at the list of candidates that the one guy who's claiming he li- he's the only one to live in the riding is the parachute candidate essentially in Jugmeet Singh. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of quantify that comment with one other thing. I don't think many people really know where their MLA lives. Uh, so being in the riding maybe is not the most important thing in the world from a voter's perspective. But I was caught off guard by the fact it's the parachute candidate who's claiming he's the local guy who only lives in the riding.
4: Yeah, well, I, I sort of I did a a, a quick story about that because it was it is kind of ironic, right? And, and of course, yeah, Singh does live in the riding, and, and one of the other candidates, some um, an independent, Valentine Wu, does live in the riding as well. Um, but yeah, all the others, all the all the major party candidates uh, live just outside it. Um, and Singh does live there. He's renting a place uh, in the riding with, with his wife. Uh, so you know he he's and you know at a debate when he when he stood up and he said I live in this riding. Some people were heckling him and yelling at him, calling him a liar. You know, and it is true he does live there, but he's only lived there uh, since November.
1: So. One of the things we've seen lately, Kelvin, and I'm sure you're aware of it as much as we are up here, is this sort of uh, entrenched partisan camps, uh, the rise of, of some level of populism. Uh, we're all aware going into the federal election that there's going to be a bit of a different animal to deal with, especially for, for ourselves as reporters. Uh, what are you seeing in Burnaby? I mean, we have Laura Lynn Thompson, who's with the People's Party of Canada. There has certainly been some element of populism, some element of fringe politics here here how's that all playing out
4: yeah i mean laurel tyler thompson the, the 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 ppc candidate here she has you know a pretty strong base of support um you know at each of the three debates she's had you know the biggest and the loudest contingent of supporters um you know how that how that Translates to a larger support is you know we'll we'll see this tonight but yeah that this sort of and they're a very raucous group they're they're you know very they're you know shouting down some of the other candidates and 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 really sort of you know it's it's yeah that populism I think is is the word and and there's been some parallels you know um with Trump down in the U S uh, you know one of her supporters I spoke to said you know the PPC is is you know, is, is is like Trump, that Bernier is, is sort of candid as Trump. And, you know, the supporters said that that's a good thing, and that's sort of, you know, that, that's something that she wants to see uh, in in her community. But, yeah, you know, I've, I've had, you know, and, and my, my Twitter mentions have been have been full of folks that are, you know, don't like my coverage. Uh, <laughs> volunteers try to bar me from, from a media event. When, when, when Bernier was in town, he, he said I was fake news and, and not welcome there, although someone actually with the campaign said I was, I was welcome to come in. So it's, it's, it's a very, there's some similar themes uh, playing out here.
1: Well, for the record, uh, you do exemplary work, so don't let that uh, stop you or slow you down. Um, What's the big issue? I mean, uh, these federal ones are interesting because you're going to get a lot of sort of overarching federal issues and a lot of sniping back and forth between the the big three parties. Uh, But is there an issue, I mean, I assume affordability in housing, considering it's Burnaby, but what's percolating at the riding level? What are are voters down there really sparking on?
4: Yeah, I mean, ever since Singh uh, came to town, he's he's sparking spoken about two things really and it, 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 from his very first announcement it's been his pharmacare plan and uh, housing you know is and he's since you know given given us a little bit more detail about how he plans to bring in you know a universal uh, health care plan and, and to you know build like I think it's half a million houses uh, across the country over the next ten years so he's really betting on that's what's gonna uh, you know bring people to his side and, and these sort of ambitious uh, you know uh, social social policies like that uh, but for the other parties you know they're not so much like Talking about that, you know, the Conservatives is saying, you know, life is unaffordable. We need to cut taxes. Um, Also talking about immigration. And the PPC, you know, as you can imagine, is also talking about immigration. uh, And, you know, they want to cut immigration and and favor economic immigrants. And the Conservatives have been saying, you know, we need to to, to cut down
1: on, on asylum seekers coming over our border. Uh, as far as what's connecting with the people, I, you know, it's, it's really hard to gauge. I think we'll have a better idea once the uh, the results are in this evening. On the immigration issue, that can often be a bit of a shield for some racist stuff. Although there's some genuine concerns at play there, I wonder does that is that an issue that gets traction when you consider the ethnic diversity of that particular riding? I assume it's going to be fairly divisive.
4: Yeah, I mean, it, it's it, it's interesting because so when Bernie was in town and he had a press conference, and I asked him that question. And um, I asked him exactly that question. You know, he, he said, you know, I'm the only party that's going to cut immigration. And, you know, it, you know, he's talking about these ideas he has about, you know, the cult of diversity and the cult of uh, multiculturalism and an extreme multiculturalism that, that, that needs to be fought um, in the name of unity. And so I asked him this question, you know, well, well how is that message going to land in a riding that's majority immigrant, that's majority, um, you know, uh, people that have come here from a different country and, and you know, prospered uh, as a result of, of, of this country's previous... Immigration policies, and you know what? He didn't really answer my question because his supporters that were around him um, sort of shouted me down and, and said, "You know, we are we are immigrants, and we support this guy." So there's a definitely there's there's a there's a contingent there's there's a there's a certain group of folks that are from immigrant communities that are that are coming to this party, um, but. How much of a, you know, of a riding of, of, of several thousand people, um, again, like I said, majority of whom are immigrants, how that's connecting uh, overall,
1: uh, I'm not so sure. And uh, Trans Mountain, how's that playing out down there?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's one thing that when the national media has been discussing this by-election, they keep on trying to make it about the, the, the pipeline. And the pipeline has been discussed um, a little bit here and there, but I don't think the pipeline is... Because this is South Burnaby we're talking about and and the pipeline goes through North Burnaby and that's where the Westridge Terminal is, that's where the big tank farm on Burnaby Mountain is, is in the the riding in in North Burnaby, Uh, that's where it's much more of an issue and that's where there's much more people that are very angry and and, and concerned about the safety issues related with the tank farm. So it's been an issue, uh, the Trans Mountain Pipeline, but I don't think it's any more of an issue here than it is than in your average sort of suburban Vancouver riding.
1: And uh, last one to you, Kelvin. Uh, Mr. Shin and his Conservatives put out a rather interesting flyer, uh, basically saying the only way to save the NDP is to vote Conservative, uh, doing a little bit of a snarky kick at the can as far as Jagmeet's popularity or perception thereof. Uh, what do you make of that?
4: Yeah, I mean, that was when I first saw that, that really that, that was pretty unusual to see. I mean, it, it, at first glance, it might look like it's, you know, from concerned NDP members, because you know, it's got a picture of Mr. Singh on it, it's all in orange, and it says, save the NDP. The uh, You know, if, if he loses this by-election, then they're going to give him the boot, and, and you know, the, the party will get a new leader, and then, you know, maybe there'll be a refresh and the, and the party will be saved. But that flyer came from the Jay Shin campaign, and, you know, I asked him, you know, why would you do that? Obviously, you don't care about the, the health of the NDP. And his answer is, well, I'm here to win this election. So, I think he's uh, uh, taking by any means necessary, by any reason, I guess, to to get someone to to vote for him uh, is, uh, is, I guess, is the idea behind that flyer. Ah,
1: You've got to love election campaigns. Uh, Calvin, appreciate the time and the analysis and uh, we'll definitely be watching that tonight to see what happens. All right. Thanks a lot. Cheers. There we go. There's Kelvin Gulley of the Burnaby Now, uh, excellent reporter, by the way, if uh, well worth a follow, at Kelvin Golly on Twitter. does great work. We'll take a quick break here on the other side. Uh, we'll talk to another really good reporter, in Richard Zussman, with Provincial Politics maybe a little bit of that Burnaby by-election as well.
0: Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Shane Woodford on
1: RadioNL.com. Welcome back to The Woodford Show. Pleasure as always to be joined by Global BC's Richard Zussman. Good morning, Richard.
0: Good
5: morning, Shane. How are you, man? I'm doing great.
1: You had a good weekend? Yeah, I did, actually. Uh, The kid was a little sick, but we got through it. (laughs) Good. <laughs> hey, before we get into provincial politics, I know you did a pretty interesting piece on the uh, federal by-election down in Burnaby taking place today. What's your gut sense there? Is is, is Jug meetsing the guy, or is he in trouble?
5: Yeah, it's it's a big one, obviously, for them. And I think because of all the pressure that's on the NDP, they have put everything possible into this race. You know, they have a lot of their uh, team from Ottawa in Burnaby working on this thing. They have a lot of people who are experienced uh, in politics in Burnaby working on the campaign. So they've put all the resources they've got into this thing. Jagmeet Singh has to win it. I'm actually about to get on a ferry here to head over to Burnaby. Uh, big coverage tonight coming on BC1 around the by-election because this is his chance after being leader now for nearly 18 months to finally get a chance to go into the House of Commons. And we saw with Tom Mulcair, the previous NDP leader, how important question period can be in terms of uh, letting Canadians know what you stand for and who you are. So Jagmeet Singh really needs that. If he doesn't win tonight, he's going to have some real problems with his caucus holding on to the leadership heading into the federal election in October. So you know, it's all on him. He needs to win it. Uh, I think that the toughest challenger will be Richard Lee. Uh, he's the Liberal candidate, four-time, four-term MLA. For Burnaby North, some of that provincial riding touches on the federal riding, so it will be an interesting race. It was close in the 2015 uh, general election, but uh, you know all eyes have to be on Judge Meet Singh and see whether
1: he can deliver this thing. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, provincial politics, uh, more interesting turns in this uh, legislature spending fiasco. Uh, we had a second report from Daryl Plekis who has now apparently recused himself ahead of uh, some sort of legal uh, independent analysis of what's going on here. Your take on on the second report, and then the the ripple effects that have kind of happened since.
5: So he's recused himself from this report, but not from other reports, which I think was fascinating for the gallery to figure out. Uh, I think this next step is really, really important. So they are hiring uh, a retired judge, they being the Legislative Assembly Management Committee, to look at Plekis' original report, the response from Sergeant Arms Gary Lenz and Clerk Craig James, and then... Subsequently, Plekis' response, his rebuttal to that, which is the second report. That's all the judge will look at, and what they're using that information for is to assess how the legislature goes forward with uh, James and Lenz, making a decision on whether they should remain on pay with leave, move to pay without leave, be terminated, or be returned to their job. So expect that to unfold over the next few weeks. Plekis also told us he's working on another report, This one, looking into the workplace issues, uh, his office says that uh, 26 people have now come forward saying that they were mistreated or terminated uh, from the legislature, mainly for raising questions around uh, Craig James and, in some cases, Gary Len. So we'll have to wait and see what that report produces. But I think we're at the point now, Shane, where everybody's just got to take a deep breath take a step back, allow this retired judge to assess the situation, and then we can figure out what's going on moving forward. I don't think it's helpful throwing out that people are going to jail and MLAs have broken the law. I think it's time to take a big step back. The work that Plekis has done will make profound changes in terms of the way the legislature works going forward and has been, I think, really important in creating accountability in the legislature, but I think we need a little bit of a sober second thought on this one,
1: too. Okay, fair enough, but I'm not sure we're going to get it. I mean, right after we had all this happen, uh, and Mr. Plekis apparently recused himself, I'm not sure if that was his choice or whether that was forced upon him, uh, but uh, Mr. Mullen comes out and then throws more logs on the fire.
5: Yeah, a 20-minute press conference on Friday after Plekis had recused himself on Thursday. So, you know, I think... We're going to see less of them over the next few weeks. I think, again, that's a good thing to provide some clarity here. But Mullen did raise some interesting issues. I think in the new PLECAS report, some of the things stood out is one of the arguments that Craig James had made was they went on a trip to Seattle uh, to better understand uh, seismic upgrading and earthquake preparedness. And, you know, I forget the title of it, but one of the, the segments of the trip was about learning how big venues deal with earthquake readiness. And at the same time of that, uh, we find out that they were at a Seattle Mariners baseball game where 13 tickets had been purchased on the uh, taxpayers' dime. And so I think the public has a hard time understanding why you need to go to a baseball game to understand earthquake preparedness. The same with a whale-watching trip where they described they were learning about tsunami preparedness by going to a whale-watching trip. I think all of that rubs people the wrong way and will be part of the assessment about you know what uh, james and lens did wrong here and again they deny all allegations i I very briefly spoke to craig james on friday uh he asked us to turn off our tv cameras because his lawyers had advised him not to speak but two things he did say to me that i could pass on were that uh, he said three lawyers look through the original plekis report he doesn't they don't believe any criminality was involved Uh, He can't wait to actually be able to speak publicly about what happened in all of this uh, because he feels like uh, he's being misrepresented, mistreated, and he's happy uh, that this independent retired judge has been brought in to, to have an assessment on these documents.
1: How carefully does the province have to tread on what they do as far as Mr. Mr. James and Mr. Lenz's future employment? I mean, they could Lamsey could terminate them based on a simple motion, uh, but uh, I think there's significantly more at play here. What kind of a what kind of a tightrope are they walking there?
5: Yeah, it's a good question, and it's not Lamsey that could terminate them. It would have to go to the legislature because the legislature as a whole is the one that voted. Uh, for them to go on leave, but whatever Lampsey recommends, likely the legislature would do. You're right; it, it, they have to tread very carefully because it's a human resources case now, right? And likely this is going to end up in court, no matter what, in terms of a civil case. Uh, uh, if it's a wrongful dismissal or a constructive dismissal, you know, James and Lenz have had their lives. Um, ultimately altered because of this. And they are no doubt going to challenge that in court. We already have lawyers working on that. So the, the Legislative Assembly Management Committee and the legislature itself needs to be very careful. That's why they're getting the second opinion from the retired judge. They've had legal counsel as well. All of this is a process because it is now a workplace human resources issue and it has been blown up in a huge scale and the public is obviously very interested in the way the public funds have been spent but in terms of their employment status that needs to be dealt with as you mentioned very very carefully
1: yeah otherwise risking a future lawsuit uh, next steps uh, last word to you richard next steps here what are we going to see what what's the next shoe to drop here
5: yeah so I think we're going to see at some point a decision on their employment status and the legislature will vote on that. It would be hard to believe again, uh, you know I don't make this decision, but to see them continue on leave with pay, you just add up the numbers and they've already made between them 150,000 uh, dollars since they've been put on leave, I would anticipate they could move to either termination or leave without pay and again, if James and Lenz win this case down the road, they would get back pay for all of that and then watch for this other report that you know this workplace issues also very significant and we haven't seen a lot of the allegations on that yet so we expect to see that report come up uh, uh, likely in the next few months
1: excellent richard always a pleasure look forward to see your analysis tonight on the by-election on bc1
5: yeah, thanks, Shane. Appreciate
1: it. Talk to you soon. Okay, there we go. There's Global BC's Richard Zussman uh, talking a little federal and provincial politics. Uh, lots more interesting twists and turns on the legislature spending fiasco. Uh, I don't think we're done by a long shot on that one yet. Uh, that's today's Woodford show. Thanks to everyone involved. Uh, lots of good guests on today's show, including Richard Zussman, Calvin Gawley. Uh We also had, uh, we also had uh, Blair King on. Uh, and as well as Andrew Midwood. Uh, We'll take a quick break here, and then we'll see you again on the Woodford Show, same time, Radio NL, tomorrow.
0: 1,400 Clearwater, 107.1 Shoeswap from CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL 610 AM, local news now.